you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows, such as Black Mirror and the Jordan Peele-produced Twilight Zone reboot in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology, as well as full episode archives, at anthologypod.com and if you want to contact me directly you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and while you're there please like the page as well um, you can also tweet me at ovanthologypod and while you're there give me a follow there as well or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com um, and please don't spam me with the uh, Viagra pills uh, I don't know why I said that anyway today on the podcast I'm going to be discussing shadow play it's the 26th episode of the Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on May 5th, 1961. And as a special bonus for this episode, I know I've been doing, obviously, I've been doing the bonus reviews in each episode as uh, going through science fiction theater. But since Shadowplay was remade in the 1980s Twilight Zone revival, um, I am going to be reviewing that instead of an episode of Science Fiction Theater. And as an added, added bonus, I will also be rounding out my thoughts, or rounding out the episode with my thoughts on Grace Note, which was the 1980s Twilight Zone story that aired with the Shadowplay remake, um, I believe. So, um as I said in a previous episode, um, I'm doing something kind of unique with the recording on this. So I have only watched the original series episode of uh, Shadowplay, and I'm recording this this review of it now. And then, then I'm going to go watch the 80s episodes and then record my review separately. So um, my review of the original series Shadowplay is going to be um, completely fresh and... Um, unencumbered by my thoughts on the remake because I don't know how they did it or I don't know how they uh, remade it at this time. So um kind of excited to kind of experiment with it this way. Um, I kind of wish I would have done that with um, uh, whatever episode was remade in the 80s. Oh, uh, the After Hours. Um, is that the only one I've done from the 80s? Yeah, because I also did... Um, Profile in Silver and Button Button. I think that was actually, that may have been a Patreon um, special for Robert. But anyway, I digress. So before I get into my review of the episode, um, I do have uh, one brief note, some feedback I got on my review of The Silence. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that Read that now. So longtime fan of the show and listener of the show and friend of the show, um, Monica, uh, she commented on Facebook uh, regarding my review of The Silence. And I'm just going to go ahead and read her comment. Uh, she said, quote, okay, I just listened to your review. I love this episode, and it was awesome to hear that you loved it, too. This is why your podcast is such a cool idea. It's so much fun to hear someone's first-time reaction to these classics. I love it. I remember the first time I saw this episode, and my reaction was the same as yours. I never saw it coming, and I have to agree with you about the wardrobe being great that it covered up the twist in an unassuming way. When I watch it now, I think, how could I have not noticed, but I really didn't at all the first time. You are coming up on some really great episodes, so I'm really excited for 
for you. Thanks again for your dedication to the podcast. It is appreciated with a smiley face at the end. Uh, so thank you, Monica, for uh, sharing your thoughts on the silence and for praising me so much. I really do appreciate that. Um, and it's going right to my head. So, <laughs> so keep it coming, everyone. Um, but yeah, you can obviously, as I said, just at the top of this episode, you can go ahead and send feedback or any thoughts or anything to Matt at obsessiveviewer.com, uh, comments on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod or tweet me at OV anthology pod. So. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary of Shadow Play, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, if you haven't seen Shadow Play, I'm going to be spoiling it from here until the end of time. Um, but I'm going to be spoiling it here, uh, so if you don't want to be spoiled, go check it out, come back, and listen to the review. So, fair warning, spoilers on, Shadow Play, here's the plot summary. Found guilty of murder in the first degree, Adam Grant is sentenced to death by electrocution. Unable to accept the consequences of his actions, Grant believes in a lie that he has conjured up and warns the district attorney that this is all a nightmare. If he dies, they will no longer exist. The city editor hears Grant out and believes the condemned has a few points of logic to take under consideration. The district attorney visits Grant to learn that they are characters in his recurring dream, which he suffers through night after night. The death house, the time, and the scenario is detailed in the form of old cliches because that's what Grant saw in the movies. The district attorney is finally convinced that Grant is mentally ill and asks the governor to order a stay of execution, but it's too late. Grant has been executed. The lights go out, and when they come back on in the courtroom, the characters are off-centered because Grant is reliving the same dream again. So this episode stars Dennis Weaver as Adam Grant. This was, sadly, his only Twilight Zone appearance, and it's such a shame because I... Uh, I think he does a phenomenal job in this episode. And it's weird because it's a performance, and I'll get into this in the review, but it's a performance that kind of grew on me as I rewatched the episode um, in preparation for this review. So it was one of those like kind of performances that just kind of warmed up to me as it, as it went on. Um, he also appeared in Duel. He actually has top billing in Duel, which was um, Steven Spielberg's... Was it his first movie, I want to say? Uh, TV movie? But anyway, that movie duel uh, was actually written by richard matheson and dennis weaver also appeared in orson welles's film noir classic touch of evil and he played the titular role in the 1970s tv series mcleod which was about a marshal from new mexico working for the nypd and uh, in 2002, he played, uh, <laughs> he did a voice appearance on The Simpsons um, in the episode The Lastest Gun in the West, wherein he played a character called Buck McCoy. Uh, and the episode was about Bart meeting a retired cowboy movie star and convincing him to make a comeback on the Krusty the Clown show. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, as D.A. Henry Hank Ritchie is Harry Towns. This is his second of two Twilight Zones. He was Arch Hammer in season one's The Four of Us Are Dying, uh, which was surprising because I, I didn't, uh, like, I didn't recognize him. Um, which is kind of odd because, well, kind of ironic. I, is it ironic? I don't know. But of, uh, because the plot of The Four of Us Are Dying. Anyway, Harry Towns also appeared in one of Serling's Playhouse 90 stories, which was The Rank and File in 1959, which also featured Wright King, who plays Paul Carson, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, Harry Towns also appeared in a Night Gallery episode in 1972 in the segment Lindemann's Catch, and he also appeared in uh, the uh, Rod Serling teleplay 
Mr. Finchley versus the Bomb, where he played Hanafi. Uh, that was actually in two different shows. Um, he was uh Okay, yeah, it was an it was uh, aired on Lux Video Theater in 1952 and the Kaiser Aluminum Hour in 1956, and he reprised his role as Hanafi in the Kaiser Aluminum Hour. Um, also in 1952, also in Lux Video Theater, um, he was in an episode called The Hill, which was written by Serling as well, and he also appeared in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, two episodes of One Step Beyond, and one episode of The Outer Limits in 1963. As I mentioned before, Wright King played Paul Carson, the uh, press editor, city editor guy. Uh, this is his first of two episodes of The Twilight Zone. The second we'll see of him is of late, I think, of Cliffordville, which is in season four. So we've got a little bit of time uh, before we get to that. He, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, he was also in The Rank and File in 1959, scripted by Serling. And he was also he also played Dr. Galen in Planet of the Apes in 1968, which, of course... Um, was written in some capacity by Serling. Uh, he passed away just recently in November at the age of 95, which is about the best any of us can hope for, I think. Uh, he also appeared in one episode. And this is pretty interesting. He appeared in one episode of the very short lived, uh, what I've, what I've penned as, uh, uh, not penned, but, um, I don't know. I've, I've, titled the great grandfather of sci-fi anthology shows um out there which out there was this show that uh ran for i think like 12 episodes um in 1951 way back in 1951 like science fiction theater is kind of like the precursor to the twilight zone in a sense um and that started airing in 1955 so just i can't imagine what kind of uh, how it would be to see a show that aired in 1951, like kind of as a precursor to the precursor of the, the precursor to the precursor of the, like, the Mac Daddy of Twilight, or not Twilight, but, uh, of sci-fi anthology shows being the Twilight Zone. Anyway, uh, Wright King's episode of Out There was called Sense of Wonder, and since it was from 1951 and it's a super obscure science fiction anthology show, uh, I could not find much of any information about it. And it's a shame because I would love to kind of look at that show and see. I, I would assume that it's probably just lost to time. Like, I don't know if any copies of it exist anywhere. Like in, I don't, I don't know. But it would just be interesting just because I'm a completionist and I want to see as many classic sci-fi anthology shows as I can, especially for this podcast. Um, Wright King also appeared in one episode of McCloud with, uh, Den uh um, yeah, with Den Dennis Weaver. Yeah. Um, back in 1975, I believe. I lost my place in my notes. Um, yeah, 1975. And he was also in three episodes of the Logan's Run 1970s TV series, which I didn't do my due diligence, but it may have been a miniseries. Um, I don't know. But anyway, writer for this episode was Charles Beaumont. This is his ninth of 22 episodes. Previous we saw from him was Long Distance Call. And the next we'll see is Season 3, Episode 12, The Jungle. And a little bit of trivia about the writing of it. Um, this is taken from, I believe, Wikipedia. Um, no source material is like credited on screen. It's just uh, written by um, Charles Beaumont. But the episode... Um, shares a lot of similarities to Charles Beaumont's short story. Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but Tremere, uh, which according to the trivia I found roughly translates from, uh, the German word for daydream or reverie. Um, 
And that short story was originally published in February 1956 in an issue of Infinity Science Fiction. And uh, apparently Beaumont's teleplay for Shadowplay features like passages that are copy and paste from uh, from that short story. So it's kind of curious that there was no like credit there. There was no like um, adapted from or based on a short story credit. Um, and I couldn't find any, really couldn't find any other trivia or anything to that effect. So kind of, kind of strange, kind of a strange anomaly, I think. Um, yeah. Director for this episode is John Brom, who has directed so far in this run, seven episodes of the Twilight Zone. Uh, he has, uh, math is hard. <laughs> He's got five more coming. So this is his seventh of 12 episodes. The most recent we saw from him is Mr. Dingle the Strong. And next we'll see of him is season three, episode 27, uh, Person or Persons Unknown, which was also written by Beaumont. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into my feelings as a first time viewer of Shadowplay. And before, actually, before I do that, what I knew before this episode, um, really I didn't know much, even though it's, it's, uh, yeah, I didn't know much. <laughs> I just knew that it involved a death row inmate who I thought was just stuck in a time loop. So I kind of knew a lot about it, but I thought that it was that he was like a death row inmate that was, uh, reliving his last day on death row. Like I had no idea that it involved a dream world and that the entire world around him was constructed from a dream landscape and everything. I thought that he was a legit death row inmate who just happened to be tormented by revisiting his, uh, his last day on death row. And I'll talk a little bit as I go get into my review about the comparisons to judgment night. But I kind of thought given the idea that it's about a death row inmate who is stuck in a time loop, I kind of connected it to judgment night in the fact that, or in the, in the sense that, uh, maybe it was a, a character being cosmically punished, um, for his, uh, transgressions that led him to death row. So, all right. So let's go into my review. <laughs> Um, my review of Shadowplay. So right off the bat, I love the lighting in this opening scene. And like, it's so cool. Cause like in my notes, I just, I say those exact, I typed those exact words, um, off the bat. I like the lighting in this opening scene. Um, and it's so cool. Cause like, I just thought that it was just a technical flourish. I thought that it was just kind of, um, kind of just a creative thing that they were just doing this interesting kind of fade into, um, fade into the, to the scene. I didn't know that it had anything that would tie in at the end. So I was really kind of, um, impressed by that. So the way it's shot is that it's a courtroom. It's completely dark. We only see Dennis Weaver's face and then the jury steps in and the lights come up when his lawyer says they're here. Um, and the music as, as the light comes up is very quick and very loud and kind of bombastic for like two seconds. And it's just, it's really interesting because it's, it can, and it kind of plays into a running kind of theme in the editing, um, of this episode as I'll go on and talk about it, but it's very abrupt. Like it's very quick and, um, uh, abrupt really. <laughs> so I'll talk more about that in a bit. So the foreman of the jury stands and the judge asks him, have you rendered a verdict? And they say, yes, he is guilty of murder in the first degree. Adam Grant is guilty of murder in the first degree. And then it goes back to Dennis Weaver and there's a beat where he doesn't get up to face his sentencing. Like the judge has to tell him like the defendant will rise 
And I really like the just exhaustion in Dennis Weaver's performance in this moment. So since the episode doesn't give any detail about his character or history or anything, we're really just left to infer so much out of Dennis Weaver's performance. And it seems like throughout the entire episode, he does a really great job of giving us more information than the script does. And that's not a fault to the script or anything. That's just a, um, uh, that's just a feather in the cap of Dennis Weaver's performance. And like in this moment where he's hesitating, like you see this exhaustion, like it's like in retrospect, like on repeat, like when you first see it, you just think like, Oh, he's just, he's, grappling with the weight of what's going on in his life and that his life is now over. Um, and he's taking a beat to kind of collect his thoughts and everything. But then as the episode progresses and everything upon rewatching it, you know that it's just because he has been stuck in this time loop for a completely um, indeterminate amount of time. And he is just exhausted, exhausted. Um, and I just really like that kind of, that kind of uh, the way that that's, that's portrayed in Dennis Weaver's performance. And um. I did kind of notice this too. <laughs> so later in the episode, he references how the dream doesn't adhere to real life, like rules. Like he references that he's, uh, that he's tried and convicted and sentenced all in the same day. And that doesn't happen in real life. And like when I was watching the episode, I kind of like subconsciously, I didn't even put it in my notes as something that I noticed or anything. Cause I, I thought that it would just be really nitpicky, but I was like, I was thinking like, okay, well that's kind of weird. Cause you know, they don't get sentenced the same day that they get, that they get convicted. Like that's just not how the criminal justice system works. Not even in 1961. Um, I guess unless there's a, pl- a plea deal, but it's a jury trial. So anyway, um, what I like about that in this is that like it gives the, the script in the story gives a good excuse for why that is the case. And it's a great way to kind of expediate the, the plot in a natural way that fits the premise of it. So like this entire episode all takes place in one night and it really just helps move the tension along so quickly. And so, um, escalady um that may be the second time that i've said that word on on this podcast but anyway it escalates the tension really well because it all takes place in one night and because it's a dreamscape world um the verdict and sentencing and all that can happen in the same day so he is sentenced to uh, execution by electric chair and he starts laughing and he yells not no not again and we're just thrown into this whole concept like the the time loop plot device and it's kind of almost to the detriment of the episode because at least for me i found myself trying to play catch up with the episode for the first like quarter of the episode or first third of the of the episode um but he's he's running through he's kind of like panicking and everything he's running he runs up to um to carson and says like tell the district attorney that he's prosecuting himself and killing everyone in this building and in this world if he lets me die and it's just like it's so fascinating and uh powerful and dennis weaver's performance is just so just energetic and so um panic driven and it's it does it so well it brings us into it so well and that's the kind of that's the level of um energy that you need in that performance because this is an interesting episode of the twilight zone in that we are just thrown directly into all of the twilight zone elements all in one fell swoop and it's very quick um and it's just, it's really, it's really fast. So we need that, that propulsive kind of performance, that, that very like desperate performance out of, out of uh, Dennis Weaver. And he just nailed it. So I want to talk a little bit about the time loop 
like aspect of this story. So time loops are such an interesting subset of the time travel plot device. And I really think that it's used to really great effect here in shadow play. Um, it's just, it's such a fascinating kind of thing because we are only seeing one iteration of this, of this loop where we are from beginning to end. We are in this loop with, uh, with Adam Grant. And while, some of that may negatively impact the the writing of the episode from from a more entertainment and broader sense of storytelling it gives us this really cool effect of beginning and end bookending the episode with the with the courtroom scene and just having this self-contained thing without answering any questions without um, using too much time to develop the, the plot device or anything. It's just we're living in this time loop with Adam Grant and we don't get the closure of it because it just starts back at the beginning. And I love that type of storytelling. And it's an interesting contrast to the use of the time loop in Shadow, or um, not Shadow Play, but with season one's Judgment Night, which I referenced before, which also, by the way, Judgment Night was also directed by John Brahm. So that's pretty interesting. But, both of these episodes, Judgment Night and Shadowplay, they both use this time loop device in different ways. So Judgment Night conceals it and makes it a surprise to kind of bring home the punishment that Carl Lancer is facing because he's a Nazi. And he was uh, responsible for firing on this ship with innocent people. But in Shadowplay, it's kind of like the Twilight Zone itself is just kind of messing with Adam Grant. Adam Grant. Um, we don't know anything about the character outside of this time loop. So we don't really know if he has earned this punishment. Like it's kind of something that I kind of struggle with when rewatching the episode over and over. Um, because I wonder, is this a fault of the episode or is it forgivable because the story is so entertaining and intriguing? Um, to kind of expand on that is the episode itself hollow because of the lack of characterization or does Adam Sim- Adam simply become an everyman character and i think that that's how Dennis Weaver plays the character he's this everyman who we are sympath- sympathetic with yet it's kind of a weird contrast because like i'm in my mind i'm kind of fighting with like okay well what what did he do to deserve this in the twilight zone like what what happened to me? Like, what's the lesson here? And, um, I don't think there is one, uh, kind of spoiler for the end of the episode, for the end of the review. Like, I don't think there's a moral or anything. I think it's just entertainment, just self-contained. Um, and I'm totally fine with that. So I'll get to more of that in, uh, in a bit throughout the review, but let's go into Rod Serling's uh, opening narration from the witness box in the in the courtroom. Here is a clip of the narration. Adam Grant, a nondescript kind of man found guilty of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared, right down to the marrow of his bones. But it isn't prison that scares him, the long, silent nights of waiting, the slow walk to the little room, or even death itself. It's something else that holds Adam Grant in the hot, sweaty grip of fear. Something worse than any punishment this world has to offer. Something found only in the Twilight Zone. So I really like this, obviously. Uh, Rod Serling is great uh, at delivering these these narrations, but um, he mentions that like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, Adam Grant is scared, but it's not 
uh, I just love the the poetry of it. Like it's it isn't present it isn't prison that scares him. The long silent nights of waiting and the slow walk to the small room. Like I just love that opening narration. It really brings us into it, and it it does it in a way that doesn't tip its hand to any of the plot elements of it. Like it's not it's not like Rod Serling is saying like, well, he's not afraid of of the execution. He's afraid of the repetition because you see he's going through a time loop and everything. So it's not like he's, he's just living this day or anything. He is just in a time, like he, it's not over explaining anything. So I just really, I really appreciate the opening narration for that. And it's something that's been throughout the whole first two seasons of this series is that the kind of poetry and the prose of the opening narrations are just on point, uh, so often. Um, and they bring us into kind of a really, strong narrative um 99% of the time <laughs> uh so uh, so yeah so i i just want to kind of take this moment now that we're out of the opening narration that i found it really interesting that we were brought in while he's already experiencing the crazy twilight zone stuff so normally like it's just we spend the first act of the episode establishing the, the characters and establishing the situation and establishing the twilight zone effect but we are just in it right from the bat and it kind of threw me for a loop no pun intended <laughs> the first time i watched it but Upon repeat viewings, it's really becoming one of my favorite things about this entire episode because I think mostly because of the self-contained nature of it, like the the actual way that it loops around and everything. Um, so I I've been doing something super dorky <laughs> with the uh, uh, with these episodes and everything. What I've been doing is something that I started doing with the 2019 Twilight Zone episodes is I ripped the audio um, and created an MP3 out of out of like I can created an mp3 of just the audio of the episode and i just listened to this episode like while i'm working like a couple times here like (laughs) while i'm while i'm working and i actually listened to it while i was driving home from work um and then went and uh, grabbed food and and just listened to it in my earbuds and everything so and so i i know the dialogue and everything of this episode intimately but um but yeah i and i just upon repeating repeat viewings and everything i just really like that it really brings us into the time loop scenario immediately and kind of causes us to play catch up a little bit well maybe not play catch up but it it commands more of our attention than other episodes have in the past i would say um and that was kind of to honestly that was kind of to the detriment of my first viewing of this episode which i'll kind of talk about that as i go through the review but um once I did my repeat viewings and stuff, I just really warmed up to this episode. So we get a shot of the jail cell of death row. Um, and we see all of the people there, Phillips, Cooley and Jiggs. I think his name was Cooley, but, um, they're all there with him along with, I think that there was one other guy that I think it was just an extra, like he didn't have any lines or anything, or maybe I was, maybe it was just showing Cooley and I just didn't know. I don't know. But anyway, I didn't catch, uh, the line at first, cause like, cause, um, Cooley is playing the harmonica and I, I really like the sound design here where it just, it's slowly like increasing in volume and kind of overtaking the, overtaking the soundtrack a lot. And we see Adam on the, on the bed just, just freaking out about it. And so he like yells at Cooley to, you know, uh, stop. (laughs) Like it's, it's, you know, just stop doing that. It's driving him crazy. And I like that the, that the inmates like, I didn't know I was, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was, uh, bothering anyone. Um, 
And I didn't catch, like in my first viewing, I did not catch the line where Adam says that he caught the inmate out of a bad movie. Um, and I just thought like repeat viewings of this episode, like this episode really rewards going back and watching it, um, multiple times because there's stuff that I just, I just did not catch at all on my first viewing. And I just really appreciate the, the kind of tight writing and the, uh, set design as I'll go into later, um, for that fact. So, uh, he says, I got you out of a bad movie and he, uh, out of, out of a bad movie I saw once and he says, just like everything else in this corny dream. And that's kind of our first inclination that we, that, that this is a dream that he is living or a nightmare. Um, so Jiggs tells Adam not to think about the chair because he'll end up like Phillips. And we pan to an inmate who is muttering to himself. He's saying, I think he's saying, I'm sorry, mother. Don't let them murder me or don't let them get me. Uh, don't let them get me, mother. Um, and Jiggs mentions that he says a month ago, Phillips was a man and, uh, and now he's just a crumbling mess because he's been thinking about it too much, I guess. And I really like how that establishes the complexity of this world. Like you can read it in one way as being like, okay, well, clearly these men in the cell have, in, in the jail and in the death row have, um, have lives and everything. So that is discrediting the, the theory that this is a dream world that, um, that Adam is occupying and, and reliving in a time loop. But it also, since we know that it, that it is really a dream world and everything, it helps establish like the fact that Jake says like, Oh, Phillips was a man a month ago. Like he was fine a month ago. A month ago, God, my voice keeps cracking on this podcast. Anyway, someday I'll hit puberty, I promise. Um, <laughs> so, um, it, but yeah, that line just really establishes the complexity of this world uh, as a whole. And it just establishes that these characters believe they are real and they each have like their own like backstory, their own self-contained universe or self-contained history in their own lives within this world. And I thought that that was really interesting. So then Adam, uh, so Adam is kind of morose about his impending execution and he's talking about it. And Jake says, like, you speak like you've, you know, been there before. And that's when Adam goes into this monologue where he's describing what, uh, what it's like to go to the electric chair and to be executed. And a couple things about this. First of all, really love the visual, um, the kind of technique employed here. So we have, uh, on the right side of the frame, we have Adam's face and profile and he's speaking kind of just in this deadpan, just, um, horrified tone or a uh, haunted tone. Um, and on the left hand side, we have this kind of mirage like depiction of a hallway toward the, um, execution chamber. And I love that because it's first of all, as it's kind of progressing toward the doorway and toward the execution chamber, it's like, has this kind of, like I said, a mirage kind of, um, effect to it where it's kind of like, it's very much like kind of blurry, but kind of wavy a little bit. And then once we get to see the actual, um, electric chair, we have it in full focus and everything. And I, like I said, I really like the monologue and I'm actually going to play a clip of it here. So here is Adam Grant's monologue about being executed. I'll tell you what it's like. You walk out of your cell past two gray doors, 78 steps to the final door. It's painted green. 
There's a guard that opens the door for you and you go into a room. like a chair you used to sit in when you were a kid. It's hard and solid. Huh? Cut it out, cut it out. They strap your arms and legs. Then they attach the electrodes. <laughs> it's funny. They always feel cold to the touch at first. Oh, Grant, you talk like you've been through it already. <laughs> then they drop the mask. It's musty. Smells like an old sofa. Then you wait. Every muscle tense, straining. Any second. Any second. And you can almost hear it. You pull the switch. And I really like that Jiggs doesn't want to hear it. Like he tells him to stop. And it's because he doesn't want to think about it like he said like phillips went crazy because he was thinking about it and uh adam telling telling him about the experience is making him think about it and i just i again i just really love dennis weaver's performance here and he he plays this haunted role really really well so this was where i get my first kind of complaint that i've kind of rationalized in my mind so i'm going to work through it here and, and kind of explain it to you guys so immediately after that we get a very 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 abrupt cut that takes us from the jail cell to the house of hank the district attorney and we're suddenly just like in this home we see this pan of super heart attack looking steaks in the oven and they're sizzling and everything, and it's just like we're immediately like like in a completely different area, a completely different plot line in this episode. And I, when I was first watching, I was like, "Is this a flashback? Or like, are we gonna see like the history of Adam Grant? Are we gonna see what he did or anything?" But then we see the DA, and like even then, like when we see Hank, I uh, or I think uh, when we see Hank, and then we see um, Paul when he gets to the door. I was like, I have in my notes, is that the guy from the courtroom? <laughs> cause like, and I didn't know which guy was which. I didn't know who, what their ro- roles were or anything. Cause I just, it was such a quick breakneck, breakneck thing to bring us into this episode. And there's so much information in that opening scene in the courtroom that this was such a jarring jump that I had to play catch up for quite a bit. Um, in this episode. And to be honest, I really didn't like that. <laughs> um, and I kind of, like, I kind of worked through it a little bit. So, like, the cut was way too abrupt for me. And it almost took me out of the show. The cut from the jail cell to, um, to the stakes. Um, and I kind of, like, I, I was thinking about it. And I kind of wish that Adam would have said something about the DA at the end of his monologue to kind of prepare us for this complete 180 in the story, honestly. Um, because as it stands, we're seven minutes into this episode and suddenly we're introduced to an entirely different side of the plot. Um, after we've been introduced to the overall premise of the episode and how, I mean, it's a lot to take in. Like the idea of this inmate thinking that his world is a dream and he needs to be saved from the execution 
um, lest he go and repeat it for the nine billionth time. Um, it's a lot to take in. And then we have to kind of retrace and play catch up with these characters that we saw brief glimpses of in the courtroom. And it was just, it kind of felt just really, um, it, it didn't feel natural to me. Um, but, and this goes from, uh, listening to the episode in MP3 form multiple times. Um, but to kind of play devil's advocate, the cut to the stakes, um, is timed exactly to the moment where Adam recounts the execution. And I like that as a bit of like an audio cue. Um, cause the sizzling state, the sizzling stakes in the oven kind of act as, um, like kind of an audio cue of the electrocution that Adam is describing. Um, so like his voice disappears entirely the second that he talks about like, okay, that's when they flip the switch. And then suddenly we get this sizzling sound effect of the steak in the oven. Um, I don't know. It's acceptable. Like, like if that is the intention that they did fine, but it still feels like more, uh, abrupt than it needs to be. And it also feels like a jump scare in a way. And that feels maybe just a little bit out of character from the show. So as I'm playing catch up, I'm trying to catch up on what their names are. <laughs> and they reference Paul as the city editor. And I'm like, Oh yeah, his name's Paul. Um, and I said in my notes, I didn't catch who he was in the courtroom. And I was also catching up on where that, where we were. So like the DA Hank is, that's his house that they're at. And I do want to highlight this house, like the set of this kind of like living room or, or, um, uh, whatever room it was. I, I almost wanted to say den, but that's not right. Anyway, this like living room or library or wherever they are in the house. Like the house set is beautiful. Like it is a beautiful, beautiful set and it's very just open, just very like wide shot, widely shot throughout it. Kind of it's a static shot and everything, but it's, it's a wide shot of a huge set. And it helps to reinforce this idea that's posited later in the episode or here in a few moments in the episode, um, that this is a dream because Carson tells Hank, like, how weird is it that you lead such a perfect life? Do you think you should be a DA with a perfect wife, perfect family, perfect house, money in the bank and everything? And I like that Hank is kind of, um, kind of, uh, disbelieving Paul or he's kind of surprised that Paul is taking on Adam's ideal, uh, his, his idea of what's going on. Um, he's buying into it. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so Paul believes Adam and on my first viewing, like the whole thing could just kind of seemed like kind of a jump because again, I was just really trying to play catch up. Like as I rewatched this episode multiple times, I'm fine with it. And I think Wright King did a really good job, uh, portraying Paul. But again, just that first viewing was a lot of catch up work. Um, so Hank and Paul are talking about Adam and, uh, like I said, Wright King's performance as Paul is really good. But at the beginning, like, or in the first, my first viewing, I didn't know if I bought into his performance. Um, so like in my notes, I have Hank and Paul talking about Adam. I don't know if I buy Paul's performance. And then I put in kind of a bullet point on second viewing, Wright King's performance as Paul feels more passionate. I like it. Um, and then on third viewing, um, as established earlier in the scene, he's completely loaded, he's drunk, and that really brings home kind of the, um, the way he's portraying the character. And I, by the end of it, by the time of this recording, I've seen this episode like three or four times, I've listened to it like 
four, three or four times also. Um, probably more than that actually. Um, but I just really appreciate Wright King's performance a lot more than I did those first couple of viewings. So, Here's when I want to talk about Hank and Paula's characters. I feel like they're really interesting characters because they're in Adam's dream and like they, they are complete figments of Adam's imagination in this, in this case, presumably Adam's imagination. Um, cause that's another thing. Like we're not like it is, it's posited that it's a dream. Well, yeah, it is kind of established that it is Adam's dream and everything, but who's to say it's not some kind of weird simulation or anything. But anyway. They're both characters because they're in Adam's dream. Yet Paul mentions that he's been talking to Adam a lot. And um, it's just interesting that like this dream is has its own interior history um, because like it's a it's a contained loop. It's a time loop like the like it exists from the courtroom to the execution and the fact that like it's populated like the the history of the world and it is populated with history of like talking about like you know uh the city editor talking to the um murderer um on death row um is just so such an interesting facet to bring to it and it's kind of like a good way to kind of misdirect the audience or kind of leave us wondering like, okay, is it a dream or is it not a dream? Like, is it all just a figment of Adam's imagination? Is this like a, um, uh, is this like a fantasy thing that he's trying to keep himself from, you know, the truth of his nature and the truth of him being executed and everything. Like it's a good misdirect there. And I like the idea that, or like, I like to think that each cycle of this dream brings Adam closer to freedom in a way. And at the very least, it brings the characters in his dream closer to realizing that they are actually in a dream. And again, we don't have any way of really knowing what each iteration was before, but it's interesting that like this, the kind of tension that builds throughout this episode is that they are uh, slowly coming to the realization while there's a ticking clock, literally a ticking clock. So we get back to the back to the cell after Paul tells Hank like you got to go see you got to go see Adam and talk to him at least. Um and this is another abrupt cut. Like it's very like it's doesn't even give the scene with Paul and Hank time to breathe at all. It's like I can't remember exactly what line it ends on, but Paul says says like oh you got to you got to go see the kid or whatever and then immediately it's just right back to the jail cell and we see Adam asking Jigs what time it is. And I kind of wrestled with this and I can kind of forgive the episode for the abruptness. I, well, okay. I can either forgive the episode for the abruptness for the reason that I'm about to state, or maybe I'm just making excuses. So I feel like the quick cuts to like the steak and back to the cell, back to the cell and later to the roast later after Hank visits, um, Adam, I kind of feel like those quick cuts help reinforce this dream state of the episode. So here when Paul convinces Hank to meet with Adam and then we immediately cut to Adam waiting for the DA, it's, I feel like that's demonstrating the kind of wishy-washy time dilation effect in dreams. Um, it's kind of like this dose of surreality to support Adam's claims since he's the only one in the episode that's experiencing the, the insanity. Everyone else is normal and kind of playing it straight. Um, and as we all 
we've all studied Inception, I'm sure. Um, we know that like as it's de- as it's depicted in Inception, uh, time works differently in dreams. So that's my kind of rationalization for the abrupt cuts because it's just uh, it's a dream and time works differently there. But a more realistic thing, maybe the episode was running long on time and they just had to trim it down in the editing. So that's completely possible. I I don't know. So Adam asks Jigs for the time. And this is interesting um, because he knows that the DA is coming um, because he comes every cycle. And Jigs is very skeptical about it and everything. Um, Jigs as a character is kind of a nothing character. Like Adam is just, he's just kind of a sounding board for, for Adam. And he provides some taunting at the end of the episode that feels a little bit not incongruous. Well, I guess incongruous to his um, to his characterization before, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking too much, too deep into it. But because uh, he's very, he's kind of sympathetic despite being skeptical of Adam's predicament. But then later, he's just like taunting him, saying like, "Oh, you can't execute him, you know, because you're in his dream. You're dreaming." Uh, it's just very taunting and everything. I, I don't know. But anyway, this is when Adam mentions the watch that Jigs is wearing and says that inmates aren't allowed watches because of the glass in it. And I respect. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I like, I respect to this episode for it's just difficulty. Like it's very, it's, it isn't holding the audience's hand. Like it's just establishing like, Oh, it's a dream. And like, whether we buy into it or not, it just goes full fledged into that topic or into that, um, that world that it just established in very quick scenes. Um, I just like that it isn't holding the, holding the audience's hand. And like, that's why it's very rewarding on repeat viewings because I pick up things that aren't there. And, uh, I put in my notes, maybe I'm just really stupid though. (laughs) So I don't know. Um, but I really like the inclusion of the watch, like him mentioning the watch and how, um, it doesn't fit in the dream world or, uh, of this, as he's calling it a death house. Because inmates aren't allowed to have watches because of the glass in it. And I just, I kind of feel like that shows that he's kind of learning in each loop or he's noticing things in each loop. And again, the episode doesn't give us a lot. It doesn't give us a lot of context to his experience in in a grand sense of it. We are only there for, we're on a ride through this one loop out of countless amounts of loops that he's been in. Um, so it can either go, it can go one of two ways. Either he's noticing the, the watch and then like the next time, the ne- the next cycle, Jigs is not going to have a watch, um, because his brain is adapting and, and creating a scenario where it's like, okay, well this, I just realized that that's not real. So I better construct a, um, an inmate that doesn't have a watch. Um, but uh, yeah, or it could just be that he's slowly like realizing more and more, um, detail that he can use in subsequent cycles to convince people to get him freed. Um, again, we, that's an unanswerable question because we don't have the information there. Like either it's, either it's, uh, something that his brain is going to adjust the next cycle or some, something that he could use to help convince others that of what's going on on next cycles. Um, it's up to interpretation. So Hank enters the cell and Adam tells him that, the DA always comes, but it isn't always you. And like at that moment, I was like, that's a really interesting wrinkle. <laughs> um, because it's hinting at that, uh, 
that, you know, everyone plays a different role, which we'll talk about later. So the arguments that he has for Hank for the fact that this is a dream makes this story just really compelling. Like he, a couple times in the scene, he speaks in total unison, complete, total mimicry of Hank. Um, which again, those like it's twice that he does that in the cell. And one, it's even a big, it's a big moment where Hank kind of blows up at him over it. Um, did not notice either of that in the, in the first viewing, like at all, like it completely went over my head. Um, and I was just really impressed with it. So I kind of, so here's, okay, here's where Adam kind of expands on his claim in the courtroom that, you know, the DA is prosecuting himself and everyone in the building and everyone in the world. Um, because I, I kind of like this sort of nobility that Adam has with him in that he doesn't want to be executed, not because he doesn't feel like he deserves it or anything. And again, we don't have enough information about the character, but it's because it will mean that the end, that the world that he is in will end entirely. And it's a really interesting kind of, uh, hubris ego kind of thing like it's it can be stated like maybe this is an episode that's kind of all about um ego and how and that's a loose thing because spoiler i i don't think there's really a moral or anything or a deeper meaning to this episode but you can kind of take into it that like okay this man has been convicted of a crime and sentenced to die and his entire world has now ended because of that. And the episode kind of the story it's telling is extrapolating that into this universe, this, this twilight zone world where this inmate who has been, um, who has been sentenced to die, like the actual execution will bring about the end of the world. Like that's an interesting kind of dichotomy or an interesting kind of, kind of, uh, tale to spin that I feel like is just super subtle in this episode and, and just isn't, it isn't explored and, and it probably shouldn't have been explored. I just, I like that as kind of a thought experiment, which kind of as, uh, as we'll continue through this, um, this episode is a great like imagination episode, which I'll talk about later. So, uh, so continuing with his con- discussion with the DA, Adam says, you don't know any more about me now than you did when this thing started. And I just, I, I think that that's really, first of all, it's really smart because it is keying into the fact that the character is a complete blank slate and we know nothing about the character. And I feel like that is the script kind of, um, telling us like, okay, well, you know, don't, don't criticize the show because we know that he's, he's a blank slate. Um, but also just, I just like that because he's showing that like, he's doing everything he can to convince Hank that like this world is not real. Um, and they need to do something to get out of it or to, to save, to save it from crumbling. Um, and Hank kind of tries to counter that with various, um, examples of, uh, like saying that like, well, what about our dreams? Like we dream when we sleep and we have history and everything. And, um, I just really like, I really like, um, Dennis Weaver's performance here, and I really like Adam's response to that. So, the, so Hank says that, um, uh, says that, where, where he says, like, well, what about us? What about us that's in this world? And here is a clip of, um, Adam's response. A, a dream builds its own world, Mr. Ritchie. It's complete with a past, and as long as you stay asleep, a future. Well, what about us then when we sleep and dream? Or is that when you're supposed to be up and around? 
You only sleep and dream because I dream you that way. And I don't, I don't know. The more I watch this, the just the more I really appreciate Dennis Weaver's performance. Like he's just fantastic. And this whole thing, like his knowledge of the dream world and everything, it makes me wonder. Like, how long has he been in this loop? And it's interesting. It's it's really interesting because all of the characters that he interacts with are playing it completely straight. Like they, he is the only person that's experiencing this or has knowledge of what's going on. And it's really interesting that this episode is played so straight for so long, um, especially coming off of The Silence, which is an episode that is completely played straight. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting kind of um, connection with, with the air dates, I guess, where The Silence and then Shadow Play, which is kind of easing us back into uh, the Twilight Zone after forcefully pushing us into it <laughs> in the opening scene. But, uh, but yeah, having so many, have, having so many straight, like, perspectives in the episode, um, to contrast the one character who's kind of going insane. So, Adam and the DA are talking about dreams, and on my first viewing, uh, it's, again, it's really weird because, my first viewing, I put Adam and the DA talking about dreams feels like it's over explaining things. And then my second, my second viewing, I just put, I don't feel that way anymore. And then my follow up viewings are, this is a tight script. I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's not over explaining anything. It's just, it's really exploring this concept in a more fuller capacity. Um, in that sense. So I, I just, I like, I like the writing here where they're kind of talking about the concept of, of the dream itself. And then it ends with Adam kind of freaking out because he's not getting, getting to, he's not getting through to, uh, to Hank. And I just, I like his kind of big passionate speech where he's like, how do you like to wake up screaming every night? Because that's how I'm waking up every day, every day. Like that's, that's my life right now. Um, and I feel like at that, at that moment, it kind of reminded me like, or it kind of made me think like this episode is half judgment night, half perchance to dream. And I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. Um, like, I feel like this episode, and I think some of the other episodes in season two feel like they are kind of not rehashing stuff from season one, but they're reincorporating things from season one into, into season two episodes. Um, I don't know if I'm articulating that clearly enough, but it just feels like like this is a good example. Like this episode is about a man who's stuck in a time loop um while he is dreaming this dream world. So like it is like I said equal parts judgment night, which is about a man who is who is stuck in this endless cycle of uh trying to uh, warn people of impending doom and failing every time. And then it's also perchance to dream, which is about a man who if he, he has a recurring nightmare uh that will lead to his death. Um, it's just, it's an interesting kind of thing. And like the way that the episode plays out and everything, it's like, it's an original story. Like it feels original and it doesn't feel like it's hampered by that at all. Um, take for example, like, I guess the closest example I can give for contemporary kind of, uh, thing is like Black Mirror, like re, like I, I have such a stick up my ass about Black Mirror re, reusing like technology throughout um its episodes like the first th- first two or three seasons or the first two seasons eh, first two and a half seasons of black mirror had really inventive depictions of technology and then once it hit netflix and everything for 
seasons three, four, and now five. Like it's just kind of circle jerking itself with, uh, with the technology it's already established, uh, a lot of the time, which I'll talk about that in my bonus reviews, uh, coming soon. But, um, it's just interesting to see how that science fiction anthology thing kind of, um, is similar across the board in different sense. Not that, not that again, not that I'm annoyed that this episode feels like it's an, it's a combination of judgment night and perchance to dream because this episode is really, it, it stands on its own. And that's something that I can't say for the technology in black mirror. So as Hank is leaving, Adam yells and says like, wait, uh, your wife is making steaks right now. Uh, go home and check it. It'll be something else. I'll prove it to you. It'll be something else. And I kind of wonder, like, is that meaning that Adam is will willingly changing the steaks to a roast? Like, is it, is it positing that his, that he, he has this power to, since it's his dream, he has this power to change things through force of will. Um, and if so, like, why does he not if he can, I don't know, if he can't, if he can do that, like, why doesn't he do that more? Uh, maybe this is just one of the gambits that he uses and, uh, to, to convince him. And I guess it works. I mean, it works because it gets Hank's attention. But again, this is an interesting example of time dilation in dreams in this episode. So like Hank's wife said earlier in the scene when they're at the, when they're at Hank's house, uh, she says that the stakes would be ready in five minutes. But then between that moment and when he goes home and finds that it's been changed to roast, I mean, he's gone to the jail and spoken to Adam. And it's just an interesting, an interesting way that the episode kind of showcases this time dilation or, uh, really, um, ex- really exemplifies that it's a, it's a dream state because it's just a surreal reality that doesn't adhere to, like actual like time or anything. And again, maybe that's giving it too much credit and maybe that's just a, uh, maybe, maybe it was just a kind of something in the script that wasn't, uh, looked into too much, uh, when, when they shot it. But I kind of, I like to think of it more as like a depiction of time dilation and everything. So at this point, I'm kind of starting to wonder, um, like I had this idea, um, I don't know. I had this idea for how this episode would, would play out. And I'm just so, I don't know. I think it could have been really cool, but it obviously wasn't the case. So like when, when the stakes changed to the roast, I thought, how interesting would it be if we were seeing throughout the entire episode, if we were seeing sections of different dreams or alternate versions of the dream throughout the episode. And like, just imagine how cool that, how cool of an ending it would have been if the last shot was the end of multiple dreams. Like if each scene is a different dream in the, in the loop that, that Adam is in, but it's presented throughout the episode, like it's the same dream. Then at the end, we see the end of each dream in one continuous shot overlapping. So we get like uh, the, the stake dream for like a shot. And then it switches over to like a different actor or something for the same role for the roast dream and so on and so forth. Um, as the scene is playing out, like in its own chronology. Um, but that's not what it was. So whatever. (laughs) So we're back in the cell and Adam is talking to Jiggs again. And he's mentioning that this is like a movie. And he talks about how it doesn't work like in real life because he's never been on death row in real life. And I feel like this presents an interesting dilemma in the storytelling. And I don't know, maybe, maybe dilemma isn't the right word. So 
I'm so used to The Twilight Zone as a morality tale and coming off of a really big and satisfying like morality slash dramatic irony tale in the silence, I kind of expected some type of redemption story or ironic fate story um, when I knew that I was coming on to an episode about the electric chair and about death row inmates. However, the premise just takes away the need for a reason for Adam to be on death row um, because it's so self-contained and it doesn't even need a backstory for the character. And it's weird because like I'm kind of grappling with that because on paper I should have a big problem with that. Like it should be a fault of the episode, but it's so surprising to me that this doesn't bother me (laughs) and I don't know why it works so well. Like is the episode like on, on paper you can argue that this, this episode is cheating us out of character development, but as a self-contained story showcasing this plot device of the time loop, I'm just all in on it. Like, it's just so satisfying to me. So it's a weird kind of balancing or not balance, balancing act, but it's a good, it's an interesting like forgiveness that I'm giving it because like I could be a stickler for story and character development, but I'm so enamored with the plot device that this episode is employing that I don't care that we don't get character development. And like I said, uh, I think I said it before. <laughs> um, Adam just kind of becomes this everyman character and like you can kind of put in to that characterization your own feelings and and, like your own like uh, thoughts about how you would deal with it. And I think it works just as well as it would if we had an extensive backstory or or like history about the character. So after the jail cell scene, we get back to Hank's house and it's kind of like jumping back and forth. And we're kind of coming up on the end of the episode uh, just about, I think. So... Hank and Paul are stressing and they're waiting for midnight and their conversation kind of uh, continues. And this is where I had a theory for the end of the episode. And um, I'm kind of glad that it didn't work out this way, but I thought that uh, I was so certain that this was going to happen. So I thought like I had a feeling that when Adam is executed, everyone would just disappear. Like I thought that the end of the episode was going to be the electric chair and then everyone that we've met just disappearing and their entire world just shattering. Um, I still think that that would have been a cool ending, kind of a similar effect as like the dusting or the snap or whatever in Avengers infinity war. Um, but that's not, that's not what happened. And this is also where I started to wonder like, okay, what's the moral? Like what's, what's the message being told? here? <laughs> so, I thought maybe for briefly, I thought like, is this a play on like a lack of human compassion? Like they, like Paul and Hank or like Hank, Hank chooses not to save Adam. So they won't exist. Whereas Paul is trying to save Adam so that they will exist. Um, it's really sloppy that like it, it, that's a total stretch. And I don't think there's anything too deep in this episode. And that's why I kind of struggle with that. And again, that's totally fine by me. Um, but, I don't know. I I kind of think that there could be an interesting alternate version of this episode where Paul and Hank are kind of opposing forces because um, they both represent different um, different viewpoints of Adam's like allegation of it being a dream. I just think that it could have been a more interesting like morality tale, or there's an alternate version where it's an interesting morality tale. Rather, um, I don't know. So. We get back to the cell and the priest comes in. I'm going to play a clip here because Adam says that the priest's face is familiar. And this is when he has the realization of who the who the priest is. So I'm going to play a clip here. We've never met. Oh, yes. Yes, we have. Father Beeman. 
Of course, Father Beeman from over at Spring Hill. No wonder I didn't recognize you. You died when I was ten years old. Oh, everybody came to your funeral. My name is Beeman. Yes, and, and then a young priest came and took your place. That was Carson. You know, I'm, I'm using him for the editor. Be still. And I really love Dennis Weaver's delivery of in this scene. Like, he talks about... Um, it's kind of chilling, honestly. Like, he says, uh, you died when I was 10 years old. And he says it in such a casual and matter-of-fact manner um, because he knows this is a dream and this isn't a real person. Um, it, but he also has this weird, like, bit of glee to his to his uh, performance or his delivery uh, because he's so happy with himself that he made this connection. <laughs> like, he just realized it. And then he kind of starts wondering, like, okay, who's... who? Like, who's... Uh, cause Paul is the, uh, is the young priest. And now who's Hank? Is he a friend of my dad's or was he a teacher I had? And he's just kind of like off and wandering in his own world. And, uh, and, uh, in my notes, I have the priest is just doing his best. <laughs> like, um, like he's just, he's just doing his best. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like I died? Like what? Like it's just a weird, a weird, uh, scenario if you put yourself in the priest positions in the priest's position uh in that but i feel like he's <laughs> like like i said like the priest is just doing his best but i feel like he's realizing that this is a bit above his pay grade <laughs> um and i thought that the whole idea of of adam working out like who is who in his life versus in the dream is corroborating the dream idea like at this point it's kind of confirming like okay yeah the dream is real like it's a real dream um yeah, so, I, and I just like that as a concept. I really, I really, really love the idea that this loop is this dream, and dreams have this ephemeral kind of quality to them where things, while you're in the dream, make sense, but when you get out of the dream, it's like, it's completely bonkers, but like you, your brain is present. It's like, it's like your mind is presenting this movie for you while you're unconscious and you are suspending your disbelief because you're unconscious. And then when you, uh, wake up, you're like, wait, that didn't make sense. Like, why, why did I have purple hair here? Why did I have this here? Um, but I just like the idea that this, uh, as a concept, like the characters in this story are played by different actors each iteration of of the loop even though we only see one loop like we get that payoff at the end but it's just an interesting concept that you know people play different positions uh or different roles in each iteration uh it's a it's a play (laughs) for adam so we get back to hank and paul hank finally concedes he's like okay i'm gonna call the governor and uh, so this is after Paul argues that Adam's obviously mentally ill and deserves a stay of execution, at least so that he can get a second opinion on the psychiatrist and everything. Um, and for an episode that's set within the criminal justice system, um, I like that it has a lot of like, especially from Paul, at least a lot of like passionate monologues that are kind of constructed similar, similarly to courtroom, uh, dramas. Like, like I feel like Paul's, passionate plea to Hank to order a stay of, or ask for a stay of execution, um, could be like, like it has the tone and, and, um, is it intonation? Um, I don't know, but it has like the tone and the vibrance of like a passionate, like, 
um, attorney giving his closing argument in a, in a, in a courtroom drama. So I like that it retains that type of story or that type of, um, that tone at least, even though it takes place after the courtroom. So there's only minutes left. Adam is in the chair. He's, he's brought into, brought into the execution chamber. He's in the chair. And then I put in my notes, Oh, that's why it was dark in the opening scene because he had the hood on. And this is, man, like I just, I love this, this moment. So I had that realization that like, okay, it's going to, it's probably going to be a, a loop and everything. We're going to open up back on that. Like that's why, or I didn't even have that thought. I honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I did not have that thought because I just thought like, Oh crap, that's why it did. That's why it was all dark at the beginning of the episode because he's coming off of just like, we're at the end of this loop. And I just connected it to the beginning where it was like, okay, well it's completely dark because he is shrouded by a hood. Um, and I found this really interesting when, when it goes back to Hank and Paul and Hank's wife, uh, standing in the room waiting to hear word if they just saved Adam. Because, and again, this is another thing that I did not notice on my first viewing. First, uh, yeah, my first viewing. I noticed it on my second viewing. But the set just changes while Paul, Hank, and Hank's wife wait for word from the governor. So the table, or first, first the clock on the mantle just disappears entirely. And then the, uh, the, the table with the phone and the lamp on the left side of the screen disappear entirely. And it's just very quick. And then that's when we fade to black completely. And this moment, like that, that element of just the visual effect, I guess you would call it, um, it's kind of disturbing on repeat viewings, to be honest, because it's signaling to us the moment of Adam's death. It, it's not just the moment, but like it's the process. So he's being electrocuted, and as the life is fading from him, the world itself is disappearing. So like the clock disappears, the lamp disappears, the the uh, the phone and the phone and the uh, the table disappear, and then we fade to black, and that's like that quick succession of things is Adam dying in that world and the world itself just collapsing and dying. I put in my notes, um, stupid line from inception. Um, this is so dumb. Uh, anyways, from actually from the trailer, I put the dreams collapsing and then I put, Bwom! um, I love inception, but anyway, and I love that trailer. That's such a great trailer. Cause that's the trailers where the Bwom! comes from. So anyway, we get the closing scene. It's reset to the courtroom. Everyone is played by a different person, it seems. Um, brilliant ending, in my opinion. Um, Jiggs is now the judge. Paul is the jury foreman. And I think Father Beeman is the editor this time. Um, I couldn't figure out who the attorney is. I think maybe, maybe the attorney was, um, uh, Adam's attorney, I think was, was actually Hank, I think. I don't know. But anyway, um, I love this ending so much because instead of just rehashing everything, uh, it goes silent. And that's when we get the closing narration played over the, the freak out of Adam Grant again, because we saw that at the beginning of the episode, uh, the beginning of the episode. Um, and it's just, it's so, it's such a good effect. So here's the closing narration from Serling. We know that a dream can be real, but whoever thought that reality could be a dream? We exist, of course, but, but how? In what way? As we believe, as flesh and blood human beings, or are we simply parts of someone's feverish, complicated nightmare? Think about it. 
And then ask yourself, do you live here, in this country, in this world? Or do you live instead, in the Twilight Zone? And again, I just think that that's, it's a fantastic ending. Because as he's saying that, as he's going through the closing narration, which I think is such a cool thought experiment and everything, um, we see Adam freaking out in the courtroom and being brought into, in like, uh, being kind of held and then brought out of the, out of the courtroom, um, to be back into the loop again. Um, I just, I don't know. I just love that ending. And while it isn't a morality tale, it's just a really interesting imagination tale. So this episode presents a reality that's created by someone's dream, kind of similar in concept to uh, The Matrix or Inception, that kind of questioning reality story. And it's done really well, and, give, and it leaves the viewer with so much to digest in their imagination, which is really one of the absolute best things about The Twilight Zone, in my opinion. So... If you'll indulge, indulge me for a moment, uh, I've had the same thought experiment kind of a lot. Like, I'm kind of weird that way. Um, for, like, I was thinking about this, um, when I was thinking about the episode. Um, I work in an office building in Indianapolis. And before working at my current job with my current company, I worked in that same building as a security guard for about 10 years. And sometime before that, my mom was actually a security guard for the same security company in that building for a couple of years and like when I was in like junior high, um, or when I was, maybe it was, no, it was junior high. Um, and sometimes I would actually go to work with her for a little bit cause my, my mom and dad's shifts kind of overlapped and everything. And so I'd go to work with my mom and then my dad would pick me up. Um, so anyway, um, so I've spent so much time in that freaking building, uh, so much time in my life. And it's funny cause like to kind of connect it to this episode when I, and I don't remember if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, I know I've mentioned it on obsessive viewer, but around the time that my mom worked security there and I would go and visit her, she worked night shift. Um, I, it was around the time that I first saw Halloween H2O, the one with Josh Hartnett. Um, and I remember like the trailer having that iconic shot of, uh, I don't know if I'd say iconic shot, but the shot of, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, locking the door and then Michael Myers, his face like in the window of the door and them staring at each other. So I remember like when I was in junior high, I had a recurring nightmare for like a week straight where I was in that building. I was in the building I now work in, um, being chased by Michael Myers. Like for a week straight, I had the same dream, the same nightmare. So, Anyway, all of this is to say is that like I've spent about 40 hours per week of my life for the last 13 years, with the exception of about 10 months where I worked from home. Um, so give or take about 676 weeks or, and this is so dorky, but or 27,000 hours of my life in that building. And like, I've wondered like, what if, like when I'm really bored, I'm like, I, I wonder like, what if like this, what if that building is like a dreamscape that I'm living in? What if I'm in, what if my life is someone's dream or video game or something? And that building, like the reason why most of my adult, all of my adult life pretty much has been, uh, spent in that building is because whoever's dreaming it isn't imaginative enough to give me other jobs or give me other locations for jobs. Um, 
and just I I don't know. It's a fun thought experiment. And then I and then I also thought because obviously in those thirteen years, uh, the like the building's been renovated countless times. Like it looks completely different. Um, I just thought like maybe that's the mind of the dreamer getting better at building the dreamscape. But anyway, I digress. That's the review of Shadowplay. I really liked this episode. Um, it took me a couple times to warm up to it, but overall I really really liked it. I'm very excited to see what the '80s remake has for it. So. In terms of trivia, uh, the title refers to, um, shadow play or shadow puppetry. Um, uh, according to, I think this was from Wikipedia, the title refers to the ancient art of shadow play or shadow puppetry using opaque figures with, that cast shadows on clear curtains. Such entertainment is known in countries throughout the world and is presented in theaters and by traveling troops. Um, also from the, uh, Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic, uh, Martin Grant Jr. has a quote from Serling, um, kind of in the trivia section for this episode. I'm going to go ahead and read that quote. Uh, Serling said, quote, the Twilight Zone has few pretenses. It is simply an attempt at a quality half hour vignette, uh, vignette, vignette. Yeah, uh, I'm going to take that again. Sorry. Uh, the Twilight Zone has few pretenses. It is simply an attempt at a quality half-hour vignette once a week. On occasion, it can fulfill a function as a commentary on a social evil or disparity. But in half-hour form, this is a subtle process and is usually a secondary effect to the entertainment involved. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um Take from that what you will and apply it to whatever your opinion is of the of the current or the new Twilight Zone series on CBS All Access. But I've I spent <sighs> so much time talking about that <laughs> those episodes, so I'm not going to uh, go into that here. So the the last piece of trivia I have is that in Vanilla Sky, the 2001 movie. Um, Tom Cruise's character dreams he is in Times Square and playing on the Jumbotron in Times Square is actually a clip from this episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, and I'll, I, there is a YouTube link that has, uh, has like, you can see it about two minutes into that link. So, or into that clip. So I'll put a link in the show notes, um, for it, but Vanilla Sky is really cool. Um, I actually reviewed it on Obsessive Viewer, uh, with one of my co-hosts, uh, Fekus, uh, at the request of Robert, who is a longtime supporter of the podcast and everything. So shout out to Robert. So check out that review also. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, um, yeah, as I said, I haven't watched the 1980s remake, but I did want to take this moment because I'm about to stop recording and then go watch it and take my notes and everything and then, and then record that segment. But, before I do that, I do want to mention, I do want to kind of put on record my thoughts on how I would remake this episode. So, um, I'm, I'm absurdly excited about this because I am in love with this idea of how I would remake this, this thing. Um, but anyway, obviously I would run with my idea of kind of concealing multiple timelines and revealing that the episode is a patchwork of about half a dozen or maybe four, um, different dreams to showcase the torment that Adam Grant is going through and everything. And, um, yeah, I also put, I would cast, I put, I would cast, uh, David Tennant as Grant because Dennis Weaver and him share some similar kind of physical features in, in the face, at least. Um, I said I would, uh, end it in the same way, uh, cause the close, with the closing narration played over the beginning of the next loop because I just think that that's such a killer ending you can't improve on. Um, in addition to that, and this is where I get really excited and really nerdy and really, 
kind of, I don't know, disappointed that this is probably never going to happen. But uh, I would set it in 1961 and I would make it a continuation of this story. So like, how crazy would that be if the producers of the new Twilight Zone remade Shadowplay, but really made it a sequel? Like, the implication being that Adam Grant has been stuck in this time loop for all of these years. And, like, we're, we're seeing, like, the amount of time that has passed from the original episode to now is the same amount of time that has, that he has been experiencing this time loop over and over and over again. Um, it's, I just think that that would be fascinating to revisit this, uh, after so much time. And on that same note, it would have been so cool <laughs> if this episode was like an anchor throughout all of the reboots of the Twilight Zone. Like, I know that, uh, the episode, I think it's called Dead Man's Shoes, has remakes in the 80s and 2000s revivals. Um, and that's the only one that's been remade in each iteration of the Twilight Zone. But how cool would it have been if Shadowplay had an episode in each iteration of the Twilight Zone and each episode was a continuation of Adam Grant's experience in the time loop? I mean, it would probably get stale after, you know, the 2000s one, but it would also be really fascinating to revisit that and have a different creative team um work work on it and and give their their type of story um i just think that could have been so fascinating if that was in every iteration but i would love to see that happen in the new like in season two of the new series um because i think that that could be really fascinating and also just the concept of it uh is it gives it gives the uh, like you can explain that like okay well the reason that adam grant doesn't look different or looks different is because it's a dream so he can like his mind is creating his own image in a weird way um, because it's been so long. So I don't know. I think that that could be really cool, but alas, it'll probably never happen. Uh, if you're a producer on the Twilight Zone on CBS All Access, uh, contact me and I will be willing to share that story, uh, to you. <laughs> I say that jokingly because it's ridiculous, but, uh, it does make me think like, man, how cool would it be to like live in a world where, uh, people like, uh, where like I could run into, um, Jordan Peele or Alex Rubens or, um, Simon Kinberg at like a party and be like, Oh, Hey, what about this story? And then they buy it from me, uh, on that, on that, like similar to, um, I shot an arrow into the air, um, in the original series. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's my review. Um, after this short break, I'm going to, that's going to be seamless for you guys. Um, next up, we're going to talk about the 80s remake. Uh, so stay tuned. Okay, and I'm back. Um, <laughs> uh, holy crap. So, okay, uh, no time has passed on the podcast. I'm aware of that. Um, I'm back to talk about my bonus review of Shadowplay. I've now watched the remake of Shadowplay along with the B story on that, which is Grace Note. Before I get to that, though, 
two things. One, um, I did in the interim between recording that first segment and this segment, I discovered that I got a very nice uh, new uh, uh, iTunes review from uh, Dan Rennie. Uh, five stars. He says, have been enjoying the show. He says, I listen while I cook. I enjoy, I really enjoy hearing Matt's insights and his sense of humor. I think it's clear he puts a lot of time into each episode and it pays off. Um, so thank you so much, Dan, for the kind review and the very kind rating as well. And you can check out Dan on his show, uh, the, uh, Between Science and Superstition podcast. It's a Twilight Zone podcast where he and his wife, Anna, review the Twilight Zone and they just, they finished up their, uh, their remake season, the 2000, the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone reboot, um, reviews, and then they are currently in season one of the original series. Uh, I think they just recently did, um, I'm a little bit behind on their show, but they just recently did, uh, <laughs> uh The Fever, which they, uh, according to their Twitter, said <laughs> was the, uh, worst episode. I'm really excited to hear their, uh, thoughts on that, on that episode. So check them out uh, at Between Science and Superstition, their podcast. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention <laughs> was that um, if this segment of the podcast sounds weird or whatever, um, it's because I've already recorded this. <laughs> um, I just spent probably, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes recording this this. Uh, tail end of the episode only to realize that my recorder was not recording anything. <laughs> so I am going to re-record it now and hopefully I can make it sound nice. <laughs> um, and not like I just said all of this, uh, like 10 minutes ago. So, okay. So my bonus review for this episode, since Shadowplay was remade in the 1980s Twilight Zone, I am reviewing uh, Shadowplay along with its, uh, uh, B story, story, um, <laughs> grace note. So the way that the 80s Twilight Zone works is that they had multiple stories, um, kind of paired up and, and, uh, grouped up in, in their airing. So, uh, this one had two, Shadowplay and Grace Note. So this was episode 23 of the first season of the 1980s Twilight Zone reboot. Um, it originally aired on April 4th, 1986. And I'm going to go ahead and even though it's not necessary, I'm going to go ahead and read the plot summary of Shadowplay. In Shadowplay, a remake of the episode from the original uh, Twilight Zone series, death row inmate Adam Grant is terrified that the participants in his trial will cease to exist when he is executed. So, uh, I'm going to spoil the differences. Like, this uh, this story kind of follows beat for beat the original series episode pretty closely with some slight variations. Um, as such, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the episode. So... If you don't want to be spoiled about how the remake was done, um, or how it differs from the original series, um, go ahead and just, you know, skip this part of the episode and then come back when you watch it. Uh, talent rundown for Shadowplay 1986, I guess, um, is Peter Coyote. Uh, it stars Peter Coyote, Janet Eilber, uh, Guy Boyd, Deborah May, and Raymond Bieri. Uh, writer was James Crocker, and director was Paul Lynch. So I'm going to go ahead and go into my review. So 
The first thing is that I thought it, thought it was really interesting that in this version, it's not the um, electric chair. He's actually going to be hanged as his form of execution. And I initially wondered if that would be explained as kind of a movie influence, like the way that in the original series episode, he talks about how um, he got some some things out of movies and everything because he's never been on death row um that's not the case here they didn't reference that as being the reason why he's being hanged instead of you know a more contemporary form of execution and i don't even know if we hanged people (laughs) um uh like in the 80s i i don't think we did i hope we didn't because that's kind of a really um archaic method of of execution but um Something that I did find interesting, so so they didn't explain it as a movie influence, but something that I thought was pretty neat was that the way that it's depicted is that it's um he's on a platform and the noose the noose is put around his neck and the uh, guards release the 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 trap door and he falls and you know he hangs um, while he is down like underneath the platform where he stood before there's a curtain in front of him and that's for like people that are observing the execution to watch and see like the, just the silhouette of, of his hanging body. Um, something I thought was really clever was that (laughs) apparently that's the reason why they did that, um, chose hanging. I would assume is because that is kind of a, a surprisingly clever way of incorporating the title shadow play into into the actual episode because uh, when when he hangs he becomes a a silhouette against this curtain much like a, its own shadow play so i thought that was pretty clever and interesting in um in its own way so the opening scene is pretty pretty much similar to the original series uh the opening and closing narrations are pretty much verbatim what was in the original episode um but the d- delivery of them I don't remember who did the uh opening narration or who did the voiceover narration in the 80s series but just the 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 delivery just feels a little bit lifeless compared to Rod Serling's uh delivery style in the original series which is maybe not fair because I mean it's Rod Serling after all but um like the tone and inflection of the voice is is pretty uh pretty good but just like I I don't know there's something about it. there's no like emotion to it it's just kind of like reading and everything um so kind of progressing through the episode um and I'm going to try to make this pretty brief because First of all, the first section of this episode went much longer than I expected. And second, this is the second time recording this damn thing. <laughs> so I'll probably be pretty brief with this. So uh, Adam is back in a cell and he is, we get the scene in this version where he is telling, he's telling his, uh, his fellow inmates the process of, of being executed. Um, and it's interesting. Well, not interesting, but they went the more conventional route with that, with that monologue. So I was really enamored with the way that it was shot in the original series episode. And they didn't do that like half, half on one side, half on the other side. Uh, it was just more cross cutting between like Adam telling the story and then just a first person viewpoint of him walking through, uh, walking down the hallway toward the, uh, execution chamber. Um, and then it, after that, it, like in the original series, it cuts to the DA's house. Um, and the DA in this episode is, I think, Mark Ritchie, but I'll just refer to him as Ritchie, um, instead of Hank Ritchie. So, um, 
in this episode, he's at his house. He's pouring himself a drink. His wife comes in and, and mentions that she's cooking a roast, which I thought was a nice kind of nod to the original episode. Um, and there's just something about the 80s aesthetic that I, I think really appeals to me. And I just realized in my notes, I, <laughs> I put 80s anesthetic. Uh, anyway, um, there's something about the 80s aesthetic that just really kind of appeals to me. Like, it's kind of like this almost dated, like, four to three ratio, um, kind of grainy, not high def film. Um, that just, I, I don't know. It just, it makes me feel almost nostalgic in a sense, because it reminds me of like VHS tapes and when I was growing up and everything. Um, not to say that the transfer is bad by any stretch. It's just, it just has that kind of, that kind of grainy feel to it that I, I, that I associate with my childhood. So w- another deviation from the original series episode is that th- the person that comes to Adam's aid with uh, trying to convince the DA to save him isn't the city editor, like in the original episode. It's actually Adam's attorney that goes to the DA, which makes sense. I, I like that change. Um, so she comes in and she, her name's, uh, her last name is Jacobs. So I'm just going to refer to her as Jacobs. Uh, so she is just like, uh, morose about, about Adam and everything. And she's trying to convince, uh, Richie to, you know, call, try to get a stay of execution and everything like the original series episode. Um, I feel like there's probably a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, a mental, um, juggling you have to do to kind of accept that, like, okay, this, uh, this, uh, defense attorney is going to go to the DA that, that just won a case over her, um, to try to appeal to him after the fact. I, I don't know. But anyway, it's a dream world. It, rules don't apply. So Richie's wife in this is another, this is another um, interesting kind of deviation from the original episode is that Richie's wife, Carol comes in and she talks about how like, you can't seriously, you can't seriously be wanting to save this guy's life. He's a murderer. And I'm like, I love capital punishment <laughs> and everything. Like she's like in the episode, she is like a very big proponent of capital punishment. And I thought that was interesting. And we'll, go back to that here in a second. But something that I found really interesting was that Jacobs reveals that she feels like she's being watched. Like she has this, this sense of being watched that I found really interesting in that the episode is having the characters recognize that there's something amiss about their world and their existence. Um, and that's something that's, it's explored a little bit more throughout the episode. And I just, I really liked that as kind of a deviation from the original episode. So, uh, to kind of leapfrog off of that point is that uh, Jacob's method of uh, convincing Richie about like trying to convince him that, oh, something's wrong or something's like real, like maybe he has, maybe Adam is right, is that he, she's, uh, she asks him why there were no spectators at the court. Like it's a big, it's a big uh, court case, a big like murder case and everything. Why were there no spectators there? Why was there no press at the trial? And she's like, when you left the courtroom, did, did press like bombard you for comments or anything? And he's like, no, no, they didn't. Um, and I just, I like, that's her method of kind of convincing him to go see Adam, um, at the prison. So we get the scene where Richie and Adam are speaking in the cell and, uh, it's pretty similar to the original episode, um, like most of this episode is. Um, what I found really, what I found that I liked a lot about this, um, 
the scene between Richie and Adam is that it explores the whole time dilation I mentioned in the original episode a little more fully. Like Richie is, or Adam is asking Richie like, okay, well, what day is it? And he's like, well, it's Sunday. And then he's like, well, I'm going to be executed at midnight. And he's like, yeah, it happens all the time. Like this, it's Sunday at 12.01 AM on Monday morning. That's, that's when executions happen. And then Adam's like, well, if I was convicted today, like what court does business on Sunday. And he's like, like he's bringing up these points as, as like counters to the reality and everything. Something else I really liked about this scene is that Adam says that you, like he tells Richie, like you always call for a stay of execution and it's always too late. Um, which kind of feels like it could be like, you could, you could read that as like, okay, is this a continuation of the original series episode? Like I want it to be. Um, so that's my headcanon for it. But, Another interesting deviation from that that also completely discredits my theory that it's a continuation of the original episode is that uh, Adam tells Richie that his wife Carol is quote-unquote played by Adam's sister in the dream and that her position about Adam's execution never changes because in real life she wants him dead um, because she's always hated him. And I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I really don't. I love, I, I really, really love and am very intrigued by the idea of characters in the quote unquote shadow play of the time loop being portrayed by members of Adam's family. Um, I think that's a really interesting way to organically bring about character development and character backstory without sacrificing the um, entertaining element of like the time loop thing uh, without going into like outside the outside the world of the the dream. I just think that that's a really clever way to bring context to Adam's character. But uh, this whole idea of like Adam's sister wanting him dead like it's not explored anymore throughout the episode, like at all. Um, and I'm kind of okay with that, but it's also just, I don't know. It's, it's a little goofy, but I just, I just, I don't know how I feel about that. So anyway, um, after that scene, I know another, before I leave that scene, um, Adam is talking about like all the different things that he's tried to do to get, um, to get the, to get out of this time loop. And like, he's tried to, uh, like, because it stems from Richie telling him to wake himself up, and he's like, I can't. And he's like, I even attacked you at one point because I thought maybe that would, that it kind of uh, postponed things, and that didn't work either. And I just thought that was a, kind of an interesting angle. So we go back to uh, the DA's house, and there Jacobs is talking to Carol about capital punishment and all that. Um, and Jacobs asks, uh, Carol, she's like, hey, how long have you been married? And Carol's like, oh, I don't know. And again, I just really think that that's an interesting wrinkle to this original story that uh, we have these characters who can't remember things about their lives. And that's kind of signaling to them that they really are in a dream. And it's kind of like throughout the episode, these characters are realizing slowly that they're in a dream. And at this point, I'm kind of just really surprised by how much I'm liking this remake overall. Like, I kind of always had this idea that the 80s Twilight Zone series was maybe a little bit cheesy and over the top, but uh, I'm really enjoying this um, 
this episode. Uh, so much that I kind of just want to watch the 80s Twilight Zone series just for fun. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. I don't have a lot of time. So anyway, um, we get the priest scene. And this is another very interesting deviation from the original episode because the priest in this episode is, quote unquote, played by Adam's father. And he, and Adam tells him like, oh yeah, you were the judge last time. And I, again, I really like this idea of making the characters family members of Adam. And like, it's kind of exploring this whole punishment angle. Like, like he's being punished for something that he maybe did outside of the dream, but we have no idea what that is. And we don't find out what that is or anything. Um, and I, I kind of really like this episode for that fact that we don't learn exactly what's going on or why his family is the one or or members of his family are the ones that are in no uncertain terms haunting him or exactly as he says to his father in the, in the, in the scene with the priest, he's like, why are like, what do I have to say to get you to stop haunting me and everything? Um, and of course the father doesn't know like what he's talking about. Um, so I just, I just really like that angle. So we get to the kind of the end of the episode and, um, the timing is a little off. Like Richie calls the governor while they're like really like seconds away from flipping the switch and executing, um, Adam. And, uh, they don't really, uh, so it ends the same way. I'll say that. And the disappearing set effect of the original episode is kind of carried over in this version. Like they redo it. Um, but it's, it's not the least bit subtle in this version. <laughs> so like there's like a sound effect of the, of the clock and everything disappearing. And then the characters disappear in the scene. And it's just a little bit, I don't know, a little bit overdone. I, I like the subtlety of the original episodes, uh, one. Also, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not the same because he's hanged. It, like when he's, when he, when the trapdoor stops and, or, or jumps up and he, and he drops down, uh, he disappears as soon as the hanging happens. And like it leaves the noose empty against the curtain. Like the silhouette of the noose is kind of swaying and there's no body there. Um, and I just feel like, like the, it's cross cut with that in the disappearing stuff. And it's just like, I, I like the original episode for, for the fact that it feels like it's the process of him dying is causing all of these objects to disappear in the scene. Here it's just very instant and everything. And it's just, I don't know. But the fact that he disappears as he's, as he drops down and, uh, in the hanging, it feels like that's an homage to season one of the original series, the episode execution. And I thought that was a nice touch if that was intentional. And so the actual ending is same as before. Um, it's the same as the original episode. He wakes up or the, it's a dark courtroom. He, the lights come up and he goes through the same thing, uh, verbatim closing narration from the original episode. Uh, it's the exact same and that's fine. Like, like I said, I'm not too crazy about the narration, like the, uh, the, the performance of the narration, but the words are there. It's, it's solid. Um, it doesn't do the whole like silent, like voiceover over the, um, over Adam freaking out. Instead, it just shows Adam freaking out. And then the closing narration is the end of the episode after he's taken away from the courtroom, which I thought was, eh, uh, I, I much, much prefer the original episode, obviously. Um, yeah, and that's everything for the, uh, for Shadowplay, the remake. Um, one piece of trivia I do have 
is that William Shallert, who plays Father Grant in it, actually was in an original episode of The Twilight Zone. He played a policeman in the season one episode, Mr. Beavis. Um, so he's the one that kind of uh, goes up to Mr. Beavis after the car accident and talks to him. So that's kind of cool. So to round out this episode, and I am recording, thank God, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the B story for this episode of The Twilight Zone from 1985, or from 1986 when it aired, but the 85 series, um, Grace Note. So I'm not going to spoil anything on this episode. It's going to be brief because this episode's running long anyway, and like I said, I've recorded this segment twice now. And uh, also, the episode, the story is kind of pretty small. Like, it's a 19-minute episode, or 19-minute story, and it's just, it's a B story on on the episode. So anyway... Grace Note. Uh, the plot summary, according to IMDb, is in Grace Note, young Rosemary Maletti aspires to be a famous opera singer and receives a surprising glimpse into the future. So this episode stars, or this story stars, Julia Maginis, Sydney Penny, Rhoda Gemaginanning, so sorry for mispronouncing these names, and Ross Evans. Writer was Patrice Messina, and director was Peter Medak, who is in real life married to Julia Maginis. So, uh, from the outset, I thought that this was an interesting episode. It was very, uh, very interesting kind of familial drama and, and family, uh, interesting family dynamic. So, uh, a thing about the episode that isn't in the open, or isn't in the plot summary is that Rosemary's sister, Mary, is dying of leukemia. And throughout the episode, she believes that Rosemary has it in her to be a famous opera singer. And kind of the the main point of the episode is that Rosemary doesn't have the confidence that she's going to become a famous opera singer. And Mary, as she's like laying in bed dying, is uh, confident that Rosemary, like she, she has faith in, in Rosemary that she's going to become a famous opera singer. So the episode is kind of about this familial connection and like what it takes to believe in another person and, and believe in each other and believe in yourself. And it's about like being supportive of someone who lacks confidence in their own abilities. And as brief as this story is, I just really thought it was charming. I thought it was really interesting. And, uh, Rosemary is kind of gifted this, um, knowledge of her of her future i i guess that's about as much as i can say without spoiling it and everything and it's just it's a really poignant story and very charming and uh very kind of sweet um i really enjoyed it and again i i'm just surprised that i enjoyed it so much because it's a uh, uh an 80s twilight zone episode and i'm just i feel like there's I feel like with all of the remakes, really, there's a bit of a disconnect in quality because you can't emulate the original series. Um, the, the, just perfection of it. Uh, maybe perfection is too strong a word, but like just the, just the, the style of it and everything about the original episode or original series is just, it's such a strong series. Um, you just can't replicate that. So by definition, the remakes are going to be inferior. Um, but this story was really good. It was a good pairing for shadow play. Um, like shadow play has such, such dark and ominous and, uh, kind of tragic kind of tones to it. Uh, whereas Grace Note kind of leaves off on a kind of hopeful tone and everything. And that's why I'm, that's what I say when I, that's what I mean when I say that I hope that the, 
I think I said it in this recording. <laughs> Maybe I said it in the non-recording. But I, I like the way that the 80s series is set up is that it's paired up and has multiple stories in one episode. And I just really would love to see the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone uh, for season two and on do that same thing because – and again, it's maybe I'm just being greedy and I just want more stories. But on the other hand, it's like that would give them the freedom to have their, have their cake and eat it too. Like have their big, um, like social commentary story and everything. And then have like a B story that has, that's more of a fun kind of Twilight Zone story and everything. I just think that would be kind of cool. Anyway. Um, some pieces of trivia, or really just one piece of trivia about this uh, story, is that Ro- there's a scene where Rosemary comes home to find that everyone has left to go to the hospital for Mary. And she finds a note saying, saying like, hey, come to the hospital quick. Um, but before she finds the note, she says to an empty, to the empty apartment or house or wherever that she is, uh, she says, where is everybody? Which is kind of amazing because first of all, it's a nice Easter egg for the original series, the, the, uh, series premiere of the, of the original Twilight Zone, just saying, where is everybody? But it's amazing to me because I just referenced this exact type of Easter egg in my review of Blurry Man, uh, the season finale of the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Um, it's just great because like in that review, if you haven't heard it, cause I know not, not everyone has CBS all access, but there's a scene where the main character of Blurry Man is alone in a scene and she says something like, like, is anybody there or something like that? And I said in my review, like, it would be great if the, she said, where is everybody? Um, as a, as a nod to the original series. And it's just amazing that I was just right. Uh, like the next thing I watch for this podcast is, Oh, this exact type of Easter egg. So I don't know. So that'll do it for this episode of anthology. Um, yeah. So again, check out grace note and shadow play from the 80s series and check out the 80s series. I, I might do that myself as kind of a recreational kind of watching thing without the burden of any podcasting, podcasting or anything. Um, yeah. So check that out next time on the podcast. I'm going to do the final bonus episode for season one of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone reboot. Um, that's going to be a season one wrap up episode. It's already been recorded. It should go up. Uh, I, I might do it like concurrently with this episode. I don't know. Um, but that's going to go up on the feed very soon. Um, probably it's there while you're listening to this now. Um, and then on the main feed or the main episode, episode 60 of anthology is going to be the mind and the matter from, uh, from the, uh, from season two of the twilight zone, the original series, uh, episode 27. Very excited to talk about that. And then also I'm going to be re- uh, resuming my science fiction theater bonus reviews, uh, with Spider Inc, uh, season, season one, episode eight of science fiction theater. And I know you guys are clamoring for me to go back to science fiction theater. I know that this episode was probably very difficult for you guys to listen to knowing that I wasn't going to talk about science fiction theater as I have been in recent episodes. Um, trust me, I think that the, the complete and total lack of feedback about the science fiction theater <laughs> reviews, uh, it, is just speaking volumes about your guys' interest level in that. Um, so anyway, uh, anyway, I'm going to be resuming the science fiction theater reviews. I'm enjoying them. I, if you guys are or aren't, or if you skip them, I don't, it's no offense taken or anything like that. Um, 
but it's it's fun to kind of uh, wind down the episodes with those reviews. Um, so I'm going to be resuming that. Again, the episode's called Spider Inc. That is available on YouTube. Um, I'll probably throw a link in the show notes and everything. Um, yeah, and that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Uh, once again, I am recording, so thank God. Um, so uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you next time. And now, here's a clip from a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast from ObsessiveViewer.com. Yeah, there's a few, like, set pieces spread throughout it, but it was just... It was just kind of like, okay, fine. Okay. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a shame. It's, it's sort of what I was expecting as mm-hmm. well. Like, I didn't think... I didn't think there was much left. I feel like um, Days of Future Past was, like... The height. Pretty much a perfect X-Men movie. Totally. I mean, not to say it was a perfect movie, but, like, a perfect yeah. X-Men movie. And that, that felt like a conclusive movie, mm-hmm. and then they just kept it going. Yeah. Um, That's kind of how I felt, too. And also... Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public Store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.